Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome, everybody, to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. We've got a double episode today. We've got Michael Lombardi, uh, who we interviewed on Mad Radio earlier today, and then we put it on the podcast in the afternoon. That will be the format moving forward, um, and uh, that's great for Michael because his book, Gridiron Genius, is coming out, and that gives him a wider audience. And he's got some great things to say about the Patriots facing the Texans, as well as the Khalil Mack trade. And then Sean Pendergast and I take a whirl through Hard Knocks Cleveland, which was a little less uplifting than the final episode of Hard Knocks typically is, but we'll get into that then. And we also have some job advice for the youngsters as we started to think about various jobs we've had over the years. I really appreciate all of you who have reviewed the podcast, given me five-star reviews on iTunes and uh, subscribed. And if you leave some comments, that's awesome, too. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. And without further ado, here's Michael Lombardi. Michael Lombardi, how are you doing this morning, Michael? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you guys? We're doing Good. really well. Um, like. With a certain amount of nervousness and anticipation that you always have whenever your favorite team's going to face the New England Patriots. Michael, uh, I'm looking at this this Patriots roster, and if it were anybody but Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, I'm looking at the wide receiving core of Chris Hogan, Philip Dorsett, Corderell Patterson, and just wondering how the hell are they going to get this done. But they're going to do it, aren't they? Well, look, he left one big name out. His name's Rob Gronkowski, and he can control the middle of the field, and he's a mismatch player, and he's a guy that they built this offense around, and James White. I mean, what they're able to do with their offense by attacking the middle of the field with their with the running backs and, and Gronk being able to get down the field, that's really what it's always been. I mean, they're obviously going to miss Julian Edelman, but Chris Hogan has been a good player in a certain role, and, and Matthew Dorsett has had a really good summer. He can do something. Philip Dorsett can do some things for them. And so, you know, I'm, Patterson is one of these guys that when the ball's in his hands, try tackling him. He's hard to get to. Now, it's hard to get the ball in his hands because sometimes he doesn't always know what he's got to do to get the ball in his hands. But he's a, he's a weapon, and I'm sure they'll utilize his skill set, and I'm sure the Texans are well aware when he's in the game to be concerned about screens, bubble screens, and throws down the field. And when you talk about the Patriots, a lot of times it's about the option routes, the complexity of the offense. With Rob Gronkowski and the various schemes and strategies people have for covering Rob Gronkowski, has it gotten to the point now where they've seen it for so many years that they've got an answer for any strategy and any scheme you use versus Rob Gronkowski? That like, okay, we know this is going to open up this area of the field or that area of the field? Right. What, what the Patriots do, and I think Kyle Shanahan does this as well, and there's a few coaches in the league that have this ability, but this is the rare trait of a great coach, is their ability to, to not attack the coverages. You know, you hear this all the time, Seth. You hear, well, you know, we got our cover three beaters or we got our cover two beaters. In New England, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about attacking the adjustments in the coverage. They're talking about attacking, forcing you to adjust by their formation or by their route distribution and then attacking that way. And I think that's what makes them so effective. That's why Brady's so good with the ball in his hand. He knows where he's going. And that's what makes them able to get Rob open, whether you double him or how you handle him. And then, of course, in the first quarter, I mean, Belichick's whole, and I wrote about this in the book Gridiron Genius, his whole emphasis in the first quarter is to figure out what the game plan actually is and then make the adjustments. Football is a game of adjustments. You can't go in with the plan that you thought if the plan isn't good enough. You've got to change it, and that's what he does so well. Mike, Michael, in the Patriots' uh, offices and coaching staff this week, what do you think they fear about this Texans team the most? 
Well, I mean, look, Deshaun Watson played, he played seven games, but he really only played six, and he scored 215 points in those six games. I think they're worried about Deshaun Watson's ability to make plays with his feet. They're worried about Deshaun Watson's ability to make plays with his arm. They're worried about how they're going to control him in the pocket. Look, to, to the key to this game is going to come down to how they rush the passer. It's not about coverage. It's not a, look, they're going to double Hopkins with two corners, and they're going to put their best corner on the second receiver for Houston. That's a given. But what they're going to do is have to control Watson in the pocket, and that can only come from a defensive line. And you've got to have speed in your defensive line. You've got to have defensive linemen that can run. So the challenge here for the Patriots is, do they play their front seven, which is usually a big, powerful front seven, that has hard time with horizontal speed, like what happened in Philadelphia, and what could happen last time when they played Houston. They've got to find a way to get four defensive linemen on the field that can run and are fresh at all times. Remember, heat and humidity play a huge factor in these games in September. So you've got to be fresh in the fourth quarter, and when you're playing a guy like Deshaun Watson who runs around a lot, defensive linemen get tired. They've always struggled against mobile quarterbacks, too. Just go back to Russell Wilson's first big game for the Seattle Seahawks against New England, and I don't feel like that's going to change in this one, given the Patriots linebackers are pretty slow. I, I couldn't agree more. Look, the Patriots' team speed on defense is not as fast as it needs to be. And I believe this. And, again, I, I wrote about this in my book. When your Mike linebacker is slow, your defense is slow. And that's just, to me, traditional. I mean, when you have a fast Mike, when you have a Mike that can run all over the field like Luke Keekley, your defense is fast. It looks fast. The Patriots' defense doesn't have horizontal speed. If you want to run nine vertical routes on them, good. They can cover those. If you want to stay in the pocket, they can push the pocket. But when the game becomes we have to defend the depth of the field, the width of the field, and the depth of the field, now it becomes an issue. Where do you play Hightower? Hightower is really a defensive end. How does he play in the game? Danny Shelton's a big, powerful two-technique inside. Same with Malcolm Brown. Can they cover and run and handle when Watson starts to move around? And I'm not talking about Watson running around, you know, like a chicken without a head. I'm talking about Watson just sliding slightly to his right and getting a clear passing lane to make throws down the field. That's when the challenges happen for the Patriots' defense. Michael Lombardi is our guest from The Ringer and The Athletic. Michael, I'm trying not to overreact here, but I'm troubled by what the Raiders are doing, even though I think objectively they got a good return for Khalil Mack. I'm just troubled they didn't resign him. Is this John Gruden thing going to be a disaster? Well, look, I, 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 I'm going to hold judgment on that. I, I think this. You have to have a philosophy on what you're doing. And if you believe that you can only play one player in the $20 million range and that player has to be the quarterback, then you've got to say, okay, we're not going to do this. And the Patriots did the same thing. Look, no one talks about this, but they traded, we traded Chandler Jones, who had 36 and a, and a half sacks in four years as a New England Patriot. He was the best pass rusher the Patriots had probably since Bill's been there. You know, a, a, a really an effective pass rusher, won games, could block kicks, very versatile player. Traded him for a second-round pick in Jonathan Cooper. He's gone on to get 28 sacks for the Arizona Cardinals in the last two years. He's continually become a good player. And they traded him because the money was going to be too great. If that's John's philosophy, then you've got to say, okay, I get it. But if John turns around and signs Amari Cooper to a, to a huge deal and pays a receiver over a defensive lineman, as a Raider fan, you've got to say, wait a minute, time out. Are you the offensive coordinator or are you the head coach? What is your real job title here? The other, the other big uh, contract in Brulio right now would be with Le'Veon Bell, obviously. Um, what – what have the Steelers done wrong here, or is this just all on Le'Veon Bell, or is it just the the fact of the matter that running backs right now aren't going to be paid the way that running backs feel like they should be paid? You know, I, I mean, I didn't understand the Earl Thomas holdout. To me, that to me that was really – I wrote about this for The Athletic. I've, writ, I've talked about it on my podcast. I've never really understood why he was holding out, getting fined $40,000 a day. He's got one year left on his deal. Go in and play. You're a free agent. You get whatever you want. And the same thing with Le- Le'Veon Bell. I get him not coming into camp, but that when you sign that tender, it becomes guaranteed. And to leave $14 million out there when it's not all your money, I don't think that's a mistake. And now what he's doing is, look – no player has a problem with him holding out for camp, but, but not coming in to help them win games, that's when he's crossed the line. And he's going to get this check. If he shows up on Friday, he still gets the check, but he doesn't help his teammates, and he's going to have to win those guys over in the locker room. I don't understand it. The system is built the way the collective bargaining agreement was arranged the last time. It was not to have holdouts. 
And that's a good thing for everything in the NFL. Now, Mac held out, and he got rewarded for it. Aaron Donald held out, he got rewarded for it. You know, Earl Thomas held out, he didn't get rewarded for it. And because of the system and because of the rules, Le'Veon Bell's going to hold out, and he should get all his checks. But he's got the leverage. I mean, the Steelers need him. I don't care what they say about James Conner. They need him out there. And on on top of that, I mean, if he's willing to go till week 10 not getting paid, he's going to get a big contract somewhere else if he's not getting 400 touches this season, isn't he? Well, I, I, I would not disagree with you. And, yes, they do need him, but they also need their pay structure and they need their scale. And, look, Le'Veon Bell's missed some critical games. He's missed playoff games for him because of injuries. So they're used to not having him around at times. And they've just got to move on. Look, you can't have it where you set up a system where you're so involved with one player. This is a team sport. As Belichick says all the time, we're not collecting talent. We're building a team. You've got to have depth. Would they be better with Le'Veon Bell? Absolutely. Would the Raiders be better with Khalil Mack? Absolutely. But you got to find a way to come up with the solutions and if you can't get a player signed and under contract that's not a good solution michael i know you're skeptical of doug peterson and you've taken heat for that and you've been very forthcoming and like accepting all that heat from it over the course of the last six months or so so i'll i'll take the heat on this one um not that i'm going to get as much national attention as you did I, I don't know about Doug Peterson's ability to handle all this pressure. I feel like this is an organization that's cracking and buckling under the stress already. I, I'll let you make a devil's advocate for Doug Peterson uh, if you feel like it. Well, I think it's a hard thing. You know, Seth, look, Pat Riley talked about it, uh, the disease of me. When you win, it's harder than when you – you know, last year they played that, you know, nobody's given us a chance card, right? And that's a great card to play. When you have that card in your back pocket, you know, you've got, you got an audience that listens all the time. They don't have that card. I thought Malcolm Jenkins really was the key component here. When he, told, when he made them get that Super Bowl trophy outside, you know, as they came into the locker room, you know, I think it's time to stop celebrating. Now, the city of Philadelphia – hasn't stopped celebrating. They're still celebrating. They're going to celebrate tonight. And the question you have to ask is, are they still the same team as they were last year? Are they still able to do the same things that they were that they could do last year? Is it the same Nick Foles? I mean, Nick Foles this summer compared to Nick Foles in the playoffs are two different players. And so I, I think the challenge for Doug is to get everybody focused. I mean, I don't know many coaches – or many you know organizations that win and then go on a tour and do write books and do all that stuff it's hard to do and everybody's hunting you you're everybody's super bowl every game and so that whole you know nobody gives us a chance card doesn't work we'll see how it goes they've got a good football team but last year you've got to understand this about the eagles last year they played they played from in front most of the game they played from in front mostly all the time And they were also one of the worst teams in football. This is remarkable. They were one of the worst teams in football in getting into more third and sevens. They were ranked seventh in the league in having as many third and sevens. So that put them in company of Buffalo, Cincinnati, Cleveland, some of the bad offenses. Yet they were able to convert at a very high rate on third and long. Can they maintain that? I was saying last year, no. They did it all through the year. They proved me wrong. Can they do it for another year, or are they going to be that same type of team? I don't know. I think that's hard to duplicate. Last thing, is Michael Lombardi a believer in Mike Vrabel? I don't know yet. I think, you know, the one thing I learned about my mistake with Doug was judging too early. You know, I thought the Eagles in 2016 just copied the whole Kansas City Chiefs offense and just ran it. It was so unimpressive, and which made me go out on a limb and say things that I didn't really have enough information on on Doug. And, and it, obviously I had to apologize, and I was wrong. So I don't know about the Mike Vrabel. I was not impressed with Houston's defense last year. You know, I, I did not think they were as well coordinated as they were with Romeo, and I'm sure they'll be good this year with Rack back in and fold. I have great respect for Rack. So I think the jury's out. I think as a head coach, how he runs this team, how he does it, I'm not in love with the Tennessee football team. I have not been in love with their talent. I haven't been for a while. I, even though they were 9-7 and seven last year, I didn't think they were a playoff team. I don't think they're a talented team. I wonder their cap distribution. They have three corners on their team that are some of the highest paid. They drafted Adore Jackson in the first round. They signed Logan Ryans and Malcolm Butler to huge deals. That's a lot of money to put in corners. Can they rush the passer? That's where I want to see it. Michael, I'll tell you, that's that's a lesson I've learned the hard way. There's two areas, there's two jobs where I realize I have no idea how to project how somebody's going to do because the job is so much completely different than anything they've done before, which is NFL color commentator. I, I was wrong on Romo. I've been wrong on Tebow. He's not a color commentator, but he's a very good broadcaster. And then I've been wrong on various head coaches just because the job is completely different than being a coordinator or an assistant coach or anything like that. 
No doubt. And, you know, you've got to see the game. And I think this is the challenge for John Gruden in, in, in Oakland. You've got to see the game from 35,000 feet. You've got to come in and talk to the team, the whole team. You've got to talk to special teams. You've got to talk to the offense and the defense. Because if you're not involved in all three phases, the team doesn't see you as the head coach. Belichick, Belichick this week, whether it was Monday or Tuesday, met with Brady and Brian Hoyer and went over every defensive player in the secondary for the Houston Texans. Even though he's not going to call the game as the offensive coordinator, he knows every single player's strengths and weaknesses, he's actually written them up and handed out a piece of paper with all that information on them for the players to read because he wants them to know he's involved. I think that's really important. He's Michael Lombardi. His book, Gridiron Genius, comes out in just a week. Check it out on Amazon. I think I already saw it on some uh, like pre-selling bestseller list for sports and whatnot. And there he was. It was Michael Lombardi uh, with the whole crew on Mad Radio. If you don't listen, you should listen. Sports Radio 610 from 6 to 10 a.m. Mike and Paul are, are both awesome. They they carry a lot of water, um, They're uh, which doesn't say they're my water carrier. It's that they carry all the water and do most of the work. And I get to be like the dumb jock that comes into the group project in college and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe charms the teacher during the group presentation. That's my job. And those guys do a marvelous job carrying me. I should have said they carry me, not they carry water. One quick thing, since it came up today, and uh, a lot of people seem to want to have the inside view of somebody who's been in an NFL locker room, concerning this Le'Veon Bell situation, where various Pittsburgh Steelers offensive linemen have come out and been openly critical of Le'Veon Bell's holdout. Uh, my knee-jerk reaction to that is that players should not be in the business of criticizing other players' holdouts for the very simple reason that those holdouts – increase how much those guys are going to get paid, um, which is their business, but it's also everybody's business because sticking it to the owners always helps out overall pay for the players. The more you can show that you're not just going to bow or kowtow to the owners, the better, frankly. And I, I think it's a soft look for players to support management instead of a player in a holdout. Um, the only thing I would say is that there might be extraneous circumstances here. I don't know if the offensive linemen feel like they were lied to because Le'Veon said he'd be there. I know a lot of times in these situations, both players in management genuinely feel like they're going to get something accomplished and they'll say things like, oh yeah, we're getting it done or we're close when in fact they're very, very far apart um, or one side's just more stubborn than the other. I just, I, I honestly think no matter what their interpersonal issues are between the offensive line and Ben Roethlisberger and Le'Veon Bell, it looks bad for players. It looks like a group of players that come next the next collective bargaining agreement will be soft and capitulate to owners' demands. And when you know we ask why can't we have nice things as NFL players compared to the NBA and Major League Baseball, I, a lot of times guys just aren't hard-assed enough. And football players are victims of their own goodwill. Like I think football players among all professional athletes, well – uh, I'll, I'll exclude hockey players because those sons of bitches are – those guys sacrifice a lot. Um, football players, though, compared to, I think, baseball and basketball players have much more of a, hey, sacrifice for the team mentality. And it's – they fall prey to owners and coaches saying, hey, you got to do it for the team. you got to do it for the team. And really, to me, it feels like Ben Roethlisberger and the offensive line here for the Steelers are just being company men. They're just being do boys for the owner and uh, and Mike Tomlin, and they're just doing whatever he says to do and saying whatever he says uh, to say, and that overall weakens everybody. The one exception in the NBA, I guess I, I'd have to point out, is that these star players that are willing to take less money uh, and that are capped out at what they can make already, that's a pretty selfless act. But as a, as a whole, my argument is always, look, a guy being selfish and going to get his, even though he's doing it for selfish reasons, ultimately benefits everybody else. A guy who is not selfish at all, Sean Pendergast, now joins me for our final edition of Hard Knocks Cleveland. Sean, it's a bittersweet day because uh, Hard Knocks is over, and it might be, might be the best Hard Knocks we've seen. This episode for me, the finale was about two people, Devin Kajust. Because it was, uh, he was the most emotional, I think, uh, in terms of just his family being involved and everything. The other one would be Hugh Jackson. Even though he wasn't really heavily featured in this, I felt like this was 
a really good encapsulation of just how bad Hugh Jackson is with people and like how he doesn't embody any of the things that you're looking for in a head coach when it came down to cutting people down. And uh, I, I really, if I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, am not happy at all that, that Hugh Jackson is in charge of this motley crew of characters. Okay, so th- this the final episode is always about the cuts. Yeah. It's more about the cuts now than ever because there's no – transitory or transition cut from 50 or from 90 to 75 it used to be you'd get some cuts like halfway through the series now they're all happening on one weekend for the most part and so we saw like four or five stories play out and I don't think any of them played out successfully like all the guys that that they had been following and tracking this season you mentioned Devin Kajust, Nate Orchard Uh, Carl Nassib. That's right. Uh, there was this was Bloody Tuesday. This might have been the bloodiest <laughs> Tuesday ever. There was at least one more than well, oh, and and uh, uh, the the quarterback with the hot girlfriend. Oh, uh, that's Brogan, right, uh, Brogan. Brogan Roback. Brogan Roback, uh, which is a great wrestler name, by the way. This uh, it, it's a great bro name. Yeah, it's a great millennial name. It's a great everything. Brogan name. Roback. It's a and he perfectly fits it just like uh in the big lebowski the dude was the perfect man yes for that time and place i feel like brogan was the perfect man for this time and place he needs to just land on another team wafting along through life in the middle of all this uh political turmoil getting caught and everything you feel like brogan's gonna be just fine <laughs> you do but well, this- especially with that smoke show of a girlfriend <laughs> yeah she seems sweet <laughs> she's Sweet and loyal and emotional. Yeah, she took his cut harder than he took his cut. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she, she was, was there crying, for getting him. into the car, had the brim of the cap pulled down. Hugh Jackson. No I, on. See, I felt like Hugh Jackson was was at his worst when he let go of, of Brogan. This is. Uh, I, I wrote this down because I wanted to be sure about uh, getting it right. When Brogan walks into the room to get cut, he asks Hugh Jackson asks Brogan. So what are you up to now? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah. He's about to get cut. That's what he's up to. Or was that Carl Nassib when he when he said they, that? I, I don't know. I don't remember which one he I, said that I'm pretty that sure that to. was when, he, when it was either Brogan. Brogan walked in and he asked him what he's up to. It was like, you're about to cut him, Hugh. That's what's up. He knows the deal. He's been called in by that that clown 22-year-old personnel <laughs> okay. guy. That's where I wanted to go with this. It, 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 this. The part that infuriated me the most about the cutting process was – was that was Elliot Wolf, who I believe is the son of longtime Packers general manager Ron Wolf. So he's already nepotized into this world. Right. Like he's got this job because he's Ron Wolf's kid. Like you can look at him. He didn't play football or anything. Like he's this skinny little Weasley dude. And I hated his preface for every phone call. He was it was like he was working off of a script and he's like, Unfortunately we need to see you. Like yeah. uh, or, I guess or it's a, they, with they one of them know, with they, one of them he said, Hey, you know what this is about. <laughs> like, dude, what are you a sadist? Yeah, man. I, I did not like Elliot Wolf at all. And then so he brought him in and he's like giving this little evaluation. I'd be like, Man, I could squash you like a grape with my two bare hands. Don't tell me how to play my position. And then he brings him down to Hugh Jackson. Right. They, and they, but do they even have a personal relationship with this Elliot Wolf? I have no that's what I wonder about is yeah. that they're coming into this guy, and it feels so much like out of Moneyball when uh, Noah, what's his name there? <laughs> oh, yeah, like, uh, Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. Yeah. They're letting Jonah Hill cut that guy basically just to give Jonah Hill the experience of cutting somebody. Right. I feel I felt very much like this is like, hey, let's, let's have Elliot pop his – cherry on these guys we'll just go ahead and like get him used to firing people yeah uh screw those guys themselves and then they bring him into hugh jackson who gives them absolutely no usable information no. when he cuts them just, just like with carl nass he's like so uh this is what we're doing we love you but this is what we're doing yeah. all right could you tell him like why or what they need out of him or, or or just give him something to carry on into tampa where he eventually signs Seth, and he did sign like i checked on all the other guys they have as of the night of the show they hadn't signed anywhere they're all still free agents nasa got picked up quickly i uh I, he told all of them just keep doing what you're doing well it didn't work right. I, I i was i didn't make the browns man i got cut from the browns are you kidding me keep doing what i'm doing you're the shittiest team in the league that's like that's what, like what telling somebody about? who's just scraping by at minimum wage right. like trying to support three kids. you got life figured out bro. <laughs> you're good you're good you got this man you got this he's telling Devin, could you just, just keep doing what you're doing like what why why are you saying that hugh jackson because that's what hugh jackson's been doing 
doing? Yeah. He's going on and not winning any football games, and it keeps working for him. <laughs> that's a like, great point. That's Hugh Jackson's whole philosophy towards life at this yeah. point. Why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Like, hey, <laughs> it's probably a rough day for you. Look at me. I, Look at me. You can if you can you can continue to underperform and keep getting paid millions of dollars, just like me. I feel like he's going to be one of those coaches, Seth. Like ten years from now, we're going to talk to guys who played for him, and they're he'll be one of those guys. That they go, oh yeah, I liked I liked Hugh Jackson, but they won't remember. Like they'll just remember they liked him because he was just this really nice guy, and he was always a pat on the butt guy, and never the hard ass and right. whatever. And they're gonna forget the fact like that he was a complete boob yeah. as a head coach. Like we'll be doing talk shows with somebody who played on this Browns team. Like he'll be a guest at the Super Bowl. They're retired or something. Like, you played for Hugh Jackson. Oh, I I liked Hugh Jackson. He was a good guy, and they're gonna forget because like. In the moment, like we're like history will just for them remember him as this just this really nice head coach who was uh yeah, it was you know we got to do kind of what we wanted to do on the Browns and I liked playing for Hugh Jackson. They'll forget that they went four and twelve in their best or, year with him. Or they'll end up being like the kids whose parents are too much of a pushover. Is that they'll end up blaming the parents anyway. <laughs> Either way, they're like they'll become just so entitled about it and be like I I can't believe that you didn't give me absolutely everything I wanted yes. when you told me I deserved it. They seemed, the players all seemed, I don't know what this says. Like, Carl Nassib was like, okay, cool, <laughs> high five, see it you later. There wasn't an emotional one amongst I, them. I think part of like part of them had to be like, okay, well, at least I can go. Right. Like, this thing's going nowhere. And, and I don't know that it's going nowhere. Like, they've got some good players on this team. I think Hugh Jackson is not a good head coach. But yeah, I don't think any of those guys feel like, wow, there's talent here, and Hugh Jackson's the one that's going to lead us to the right, promise land. Right, right. You'd hear these stories about Belichick even when he was at Cleveland where the veteran players would be telling the younger players, like, listen, this dude knows what the hell he's doing. Yeah. He's, a, he's a football genius. And this just, is the opposite. Right, yeah, this is the exact opposite. You're, I'm, that's a really good observation. I think all those guys somewhere in the back of their mind, even if they were nervous about their future, were thinking – I just want to win football games. Yeah, it's it's miserable. I've been on two and fourteen seasons, and yes, you're making great money and it's awesome and all of that. But it's just miserable not winning football. You forget you forget that you love the game yeah. when you're not winning like that. I think of all the guys who got cut. Like let, let's go, like go through them for a second. <laughs> there were four guys. <clears throat> well, for one, before we get to those yeah. four, Antonio Callaway. <laughs> He made the team. Oh, yeah. Big surprise. Now, Hard Knocks acts like is a big surprise. Yeah, the third-round pick that they knew had character issues, well, yeah, that one little blip that he had getting pulled over, they're not going to cut a third-round pick because third-round picks hardly ever get cut their rookie year. And I love that when Hugh Jackson was doing his little speech at the end about these are the 53. These are the guys that want to be here. Yeah. You guys want to win. And they pan around the room to like five or six different guys, just headshots of them. And one of them's Antonio Callaway, who did everything he could to like not make the team. Like yeah. he's getting pulled over, he's doing weed. Um the four guys who got cut on the show, Roback, Orchard, uh Kajust, and Nassib, I feel like of those like of the four like Roback, I think like an Ohio kid, like I think he didn't care that it was the Browns, and he's undrafted. Right. Like he wanted to make that team. His girlfriend wanted him to make the team. Like that guy wanted to make the team. Orchard's been there a few years, so he's got relationships. I don't know that he's. I don't think he's landed anywhere else yet. But my guess is he's going to get a job somewhere. He's got cute kids. He does. He seems like he's in a good place in his life. Yeah. So maybe a change of scenery might actually be good for him. Um, Kajust, I don't know what to think of Kajust, man. Like, I, I need to climb inside his brain. I think Kajust is going to be just fine no matter where he is. I, I had a kid like that that we – I can't think of his name right now, but he was kind of just a hippie that, with, with the Jaguars. He'd get cut, and then he'd kind of – he'd go camping – out in the mountains for a month or two, and then all of a sudden they'd call him back on, uh, on onto the practice squad. Yeah, and he was just fine. He didn't have any kids or anything. I th I think Kajus can play a little bit too. Yeah, I he's like the new age tight end. Yeah. He's a glorified wide receiver. Like right, he, he, said he was a receiver day. at Stanford, right. so they it, converted. Him. I felt bad for his dad because his dad thought that he had made the team. Yes, on the FaceTime, he did there. not break the news to his dad very well. No, and he wasn't and like I, he was trying to toy with his dad's emotions or anything. He just didn't. He couldn't get around because of the bad FaceTime. Connection and, to, to and he was smart. And the thing about Kajust, I think he's a perpetually. I think those little crystals that he carries around make him a perpetually positive person. Yeah. So when he started FaceTiming with his dad, he had a big smile on his face, and he's sitting there. And his dad was already predisposed to thinking he was making the team. I felt so bad watching that episode, knowing that Kajust gets cut. 
watching his dad watch the game because Kajus had a pretty good game. Right, in the fourth right. He made a couple catches. And his dad has uh, found out he's going to have to undergo open heart surgery yeah. so he couldn't be at the game. Yeah, and, and so I, I, watching his dad two times in that episode, I felt so bad. First when he's watching the game because he's like, oh, yeah, he's making the team now. I'm like, God, no, he's not, man. I feel terrible for you. And then the FaceTime when he calls him, I'm like, God, just break the news to him, man. Do it now. The longer you go. Just rip the Band-Aid off. Like, the longer He's, you go, the more the more it's going to – like, you, you, he might have heart failure on hard knocks right you know, here. Devin's sitting there with, like, his happy Buddhist smile. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's just like he's in Nirvana or something and waiting to tell his dad and devastate this. him. All right, I'm going, this is all leading up to bad news right now. So, that was a good Todd Haley moment, by the way, when they're walking out to the game and, and Todd Haley said – Act, play like they stole one of your crystals, <laughs> one of your stones. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about Haley in a second, but just could you some with you? I think he'll be fine. I think he's going to find a job. Of the four guys, I feel like Nassib was like, okay, high five, coach. See yeah. you later. Because, A, he probably knew he was going to land a job pretty quickly, and, B, he got the hell out of Cleveland. Uh, C, financial advisor that he is, no state income tax in Florida. Bam. If he had an inkling that he was going to end up in Tampa, oh. no state income tax versus Ohio, which I'm sure is we need like a, 8% state income tax. We need a fi- I bet it is expensive. We need a follow-up hard knocks short. You know, like they do those 30 for 30 shorts. We yeah. need a follow-up hard knocks short on Carl Nassib it, in Tampa Bay. That's a really good idea. I know since you know their producer, you should Ken float Rogers. like or just yeah. a, a hard knocks epilogue. You go through like a month later or right at the, even at the end of the season in January. That would be pretty cool. Do it in January. You're writing it down right now. I am texting myself a note to do that. <laughs> that's, what I, that's how I keep track of things. So uh, the other thing about Antonio Callaway is as he finds out that he made the team, which everybody knew he was going to make the team. Right. Um, I, I just can't get over how innocent that kid looks. Like, he looks like an innocent child. Like, he looks so sweet. He looks so tender. Like, the last kid that you expect to show up in the principal's office, and yet yeah. he's had multiple legal issues. The look on his face does not scream credit card fraud and driving around high. No, and uh, I believe a dropped assault charge, was it not? Was there? I don't know. Yeah. I'll edit this out if that was the case. <laughs> I don't like messing around with that stuff. You float out there you just put it in somebody's brain that there was an assault charge yeah then in that in that person's subconscious it's like Dude. oh yeah that guy had an assault charge yeah so i don't know about that i'll double check if yeah. you're listening to me say this right now then know that it was a, a charge that was dropped but then also was uh he was talking to antonio brown on the phone afterwards and i thought oh yeah or he's facetiming him antonio brown had some good advice about writing your goals down yeah like being sure that they're written down so you can look at them and always re- remind that yourself of exactly advice. what they are yep um, I found myself liking Todd Haley a lot more by the end of the season. Yeah. I think this last episode, I don't know if Greg Williams was banned from the show by Hugh Jackson or somebody. You saw very little Greg Williams until the very end where he's uh, yelling at somebody about putting his testicles in the sea gap. Yeah, that was in, like, the credits. Yeah, that, yeah. I, I can explain what that is. Um, the other, it's nothing sick or dirty or anything. Uh, but uh, there's, there was that. And then, yeah, I think over the last couple episodes – Todd Haley looked more human. Yeah. I don't know if, like, part of that was him knowing that he's on camera and that he wants to have a little a, a little bit of shine on him. Maybe. But at the very beginning where when they're blaring music on a Sunday and he's pointing out there's a church <laughs> yeah. right over on the other side of the fence <laughs> yeah. as people are walking into that church. That was funny. But <clears throat> he was uh, he was laughing at I, – I don't know if he was laughing at Christian Kirksey's dancing. It wasn't like he was judging – or angry about Christian Kirksey's dancing. It was just Todd Haley could not figure out Christian Kirksey's dancing. It was funny. It was like he was yeah. looking at it, like he had been <laughs> dropped in from 1937 yes, or something. Yeah. He was like, well, what's this business over here <laughs> all about? Going on? Yeah. Yeah, he I I found myself I found myself liking him a lot more. You know what I liked is that in the previous episode, he was up in Jarvis Landry's shit in that episode. Like he was he was all over Jarvis Landry during that game. Remember the ball that sailed way over his head? Yeah. And he's like, oh, you should lay out for that. You could have had that one. And, like, you do a side angle on it. It's like he had no chance at that one. And then in this episode, the two of them are joking around. I, I think in football, and you can obviously speak to this better than I can, I feel like that's a world where you better not be very thin-skinned. Like, you got to have a pretty short memory when it comes to guys and coaches especially, you know, driving at you hard being maybe even on the border you know bordering on insulting when they're coming to criticizing you and things like yeah that. and especially on game day like or on the sideline there are a lot of exchanges between coaches and players that you don't even remember afterwards yeah. I remember I was in college once and I, I blew up on my position coach freaked out on him and I remember after the game like I was like oh crap 
I really, I really messed up there, man. That was not right. That was not respectful. And I went up to him on the bus to apologize, and he was like, "What the, what the hell are you talking about, Zach?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, was... had, he had no memory of it. He was like, oh, "What do you? Oh, oh, what that?" So when, <laughs> so when did your, when did your memory start to become? Uh, w- when did you transition to being like having a football memory to where you didn't internalize those yeah, things? Anymore? I don't know. I was probably always too sensitive. And like, really? uh, yeah, I just I take criticism to heart. Like you even know, in the NFL. not in a bad way yeah. to where like I resented the coach for it or anything. But like I the, probably my I had some really good coaches that understand the differences in players and they know which guys respond to being road hard and they know which guys respond because some guys that just like you say one little thing to them and they correct it and I I think I was always that guy yeah yeah that all you have to do is tell me a little thing just tell me and I'm gonna correct it so sometimes I I think I'd get pissed that. Like, listen, dude, you know me. Like, you don't have to berate me in front of everybody. I'm going to fix this issue. Don't treat me like I'm a three-year-old that just pooped on the carpet. Yeah. Not that you should treat your three-year-old that way for <laughs> pooping on the carpet either. So uh, Berating yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, rubbing their nose in it. <laughs> listen, you filthy cur. <laughs> that's not good re- That's not good child That is not. That's not good parenting. You do – I think you do need to manage – you know, it's, that's a business principle too just those different people need to be – manage different yeah. ways i got know? better I, I think i the nfl was really good for me for getting rid of my sensitivity though because now i'm now that i'm thinking about it when i came in my rookie year i was way sensitive about just just joking around and everything like getting made fun of anything like like normal stuff um i was still i was i was kind of sensitive about that and by the time i was done in the nfl like i don't i just didn't care anymore did you because you went to cornell which is not exactly a football right. factory a lot of these guys come in like uh, they they come into the NFL, and I'm trying to. Oh, it was uh, it was Terry Swanson. We yeah. we interviewed him on the post game show last week after the Texans' fourth preseason game, and he comes from the same school as Kareem Hunt. They both went to Toledo, played the same position, and I asked him about do you keep in touch with Kareem? And they talk like they Facetime very yeah. frequently, and I feel like guys when they come in from like Alabama or Georgia or any fill in name of any big football power, they've got a lot of guys they can kind of they, as rookies. They've probably talked to a lot of guys who've been in the league already yeah. that come back on the bye week or yeah. they played the same position, so they text a lot. Did you have anybody like that that you could lean on coming into the NFL? Did you have any clue as to what the experience no, was going to be like because of really. where you came from? Right, and at that point, out of the Ivy League, nobody had been drafted in years. Yeah. there was uh, So the year that I got drafted, it was me, Marcellus Wiley, and Chad Levitt. We were the first three guys to get drafted in like over a decade, I no think. No kidding. Yeah, there were – Ivy League football kind of took a jump forward in the 90s because we started having freshmen uh, – we started allowing freshmen to play on varsity yeah, and everything, yeah. so they got better at recruiting. Um, but it was uh, – yeah, at that point there hadn't been a whole lot of guys, and it was – there wasn't anything on YouTube or anything back right. then. There was no YouTube. There's, there's no, yeah. Do you know how old I am? It's like YouTube came out like my last year in the NFL. Yeah. That's what's freaked me out to realize yeah. is that this whole YouTube, Twitter, social media, Facebook even was only my last couple years in the NFL. Yep. And that was 10 years ago. It's just astounding how fast everything's It's a different changed. world. So you didn't have anybody. So, like no, that, I didn't though. have that. And I had a chip on my shoulder. You know, I was like, okay, I'm a small school guy. Yeah. I'm going to have to fight guys. Like there was more fighting in training camps back then. Yeah. So I probably got more fights in training camp my rookie year than anybody else on the team because I kept hearing from like, oh, you're Cornell guy, huh? Like, oh, you probably you probably care more about you know, reading yeah, the sports. Yeah. Like, oh, it's not a make science fair, egghead. Yeah, but yeah. there were scouts that kind of wondered that about players from the Ivy League. Sure. Like, are they going to be – I'm like, dude, I'll show you my transcript. I'm a very poor student. <laughs> like, uh, I really have nothing to fall back on here. Just trust me on this. I bet – so you played for Tom Coughlin early on. Like, he was your coach when you got into the league. Did yeah. he like that you were a guy who got into fights at training camp, or did he, did, I, I did think he not he, like it? I think he – like, kind of like a father that – when his son behaves, but like he sees that he's got some vigor to him, I think it was like that. Yeah, Coughlin changed his tune completely after Marcus Stroud, who was a first-round draft pick, got in a fight with Mark Banowitz, and uh, Stroud broke his fist on on Banowitz's face. He'd gotten his helmet off. He broke it on his face, not his helmet. Wow. And then after that, it was a strict no fighting yeah, policy. Yeah, yeah. I think there was something about Coughlin just liked guys being kind of testy. <laughs> you fourth rounders, go ahead and duke it <laughs> out. The first rounder breaks his hand. You know in Full Metal Jacket when they're talking about the end of uh, the end of boot camp? Yeah. When the instructors don't really want guys to – they're saying that they don't want guys that are just robots. They want guys that are a little feisty yes. and a little. I think Coughlin used to be like that. That would make sense. Yeah, 
I was, I was talking to Marine about that, and I don't know. I always piss off a Marine when I start to try to generalize about <laughs> Marines because obviously everybody has different opinions. Yeah, but sure. but this one guy was saying I, I was asking him about like the discipline of going back and playing college football after being in the Marines, and I was like, I would imagine like you guys are way more disciplined. And he said, Well, yeah, but the, you know the Marines are a little bit different. Yeah, like the Marines doesn't want guys that are strictly all like brainless morons, right. like that are going to follow. Obviously, they want them to follow orders. I don't know. I Again, uh, everybody uh, email me, Seth at DeceptivelyFast.com. <laughs> I'm sure I'm messing this up. Correct me on it. I don't want to piss off any Marines. It's like the last group of people on earth I want to, I want to piss oh, off. Oh, yeah. Um, what else? I think that's about it. I, like Overall, my overall feelings about this Hard Knocks were that it was my favorite overall as a whole. I felt a little bit left let down at the end, and I think really it was because there was no story of triumph. There was no, wow, this guy dug it out and he made it. The closest they came was Baker Mayfield, the number one overall pick being named backup. Yeah. And, and by the way, again, that's another Hugh Jackson thing. Hugh Jackson had already said it in the media. He said it at a press conference last week that, or two weeks ago, that, well, hey, Baker Mayfield's the, the backup. I mean, I haven't told those guys yet, you know, so it's not official, but, you know, you, you guys know. And then he calls these guys in. To tell Baker Mayfield something he already knows and just to humiliate Drew Stanton. It's like he doesn't realize the internet exists. <laughs> you know, like the media, like, I'm going to tell you guys. I know it won't get out there. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, it won't get out He's there. He's barely conscious of, like, even cable television probably. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, the One other thing, just to add, uh, the, uh, Bob Wiley, the offensive line coach, his – I don't know if it was a pep talk or just kind of oh, conversation yeah. – but I, as someone who is doing a job now that doesn't really feel like work when you come in every day, I'm like, that's it right there. He gave some great advice. He, he said, did. These he are said the you jobs wanna, you want. Yeah, he's well, but he was an, he was a pilot and he was uh, and he was he's a been coach. a coach. He yeah. said he's never had a real job. He said you want to have your name on the back of your shirt, right? Not on the front of your I shirt. That was tremendous. Right. I love that. Like at it, the well, beginning of this season, I was like, how can this guy have a job? Look at him. Like you can't. Like. I, how can you respect a guy who's just got like this gigantic boiler and you're in a, a, a world of discipline? And by the end of the season, I'm like, now I see why they have that guy around. He has a few sayings where, you know, in some of these earlier episodes of the podcast where I've talked about how his uh, some of his some of his utterances don't quite stand up to logic. Yeah. And yet they're still true. <laughs> right? Like kind of like Yogi Berra, you know, like it doesn't have to be literally true. You know what he's saying and he's saying it in an entertaining way. Right. But I thought that was uh that was very very good. Um that that reminds me of this. I just read a Charles Bukowski book who's like a who's a poet who wrote some novels that were basically autobiographical. He's just a huge drunk. He was a drunk and a wino and a lot of people he was he was very popular with like adolescents and disenfranchised people because it was he was leading this life that almost when you're a 16 year old kid you sound like that's the life <laughs> I, want. That's who I want he's hopping be. from job to job he's drunk and miserable but in a romantic way right, you know right. like he's yeah he says he's miserable but in the same way that like war movies are supposed to scare you and, and show you the horrors of war but when you're a teenage boy you're like yeah Let's go I war. want that misery right. yeah so uh but but he is a poet, and he's writing these uh, these autobiographical stories or, or novels, and he's bouncing around from job to job. And there's something to be said for a mindless job mm -hmm. if you have outside interests. Yeah. Like, if I had outside interests, I think I would want a job as a janitor or something like that because thinking thinking for four hours, thinking for eight hours, and let's be honest, if you've got an eight-hour job, you're probably thinking for about four hours. Right. It's hard to do more thinking at the end of the day. It is. I've always thought that of – Jobs like that, like ju just jobs where it doesn't seem like you have to think very much, I'm like, I would make a really good delivery driver because I could just drive around all day. And listen to things. And listen to things. Yeah. yeah, I could do that because I like I like the newness of just driving to a different place. I like driving around the country as mm -hmm. opposed to flying everywhere just because I, I like the experience of going down highways and seeing seeing different things and stuff like that. And I've always thought to myself, like, yeah, if I ever get to a place in life where I'm like, you know what, I just, I just need – I just got to pay for my food, keep right. the lights on. You just know, earn I just a paycheck. Earn a paycheck. And not think about a... your job when you're not on your job. That, I, not... I feel like of all jobs, that's the one like where you park the, the delivery truck. Yeah. Your job is over that day. Nobody's calling you to ask you your opinion on anything or your take on anything or berate you for anything. As long as the packages all made it to where they were supposed to go and you park that truck, your day is over. And you don't. You, you get so much good thinking done. That was the one thing I missed about being on the farm is like you're out on a tractor for 10 or 12 hours. Yeah. And it's boring as hell, 
but your mind takes you to interesting places. That's right. And you can get pretty creative, and you can think uh, you can think your way through a bunch of things. Same way with driving versus like airplane flying. Yes. Airplane flying, there's distractions and everything. But if you're driving on an interstate, that's what I was doing actually when I decided to get into media. When I was uh, I was driving around trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, or like moving around the country. Yeah. And I ended up doing like some oil and gas work in Western PA. And it involved just a whole lot of driving. I'd have to go, like, meet with landowners and okay. try to get them to sign a contract. Yeah, or yeah. I was trying to find out, like, I, I'd have to confirm. I was looking into the property rights uh, going back 144 years, I think. Wow. So I would have to, like, go interview old ladies about whether or not their great Aunt Mabel, you know, actually married this dude or who died Are you when. Serious? Oh, yeah. And I'd have to go to old graveyards and I would, like, take rubbings of gravestones. Yeah. To prove that somebody died because there'd be gaps in the record. And you had to wow. you had to prove that the people that are, you know, selling you their mineral rights actually own the mineral rights. So a lot of That's fun. Awesome. Yeah. It was really cool. And it was in Western PA, which is beautiful. It's beautiful, yeah. You know, so mostly in the summer I'd have to go out and walk property. Yeah. So like somebody might have an eighty acre parcel they're giving up. I'd have to go out to be sure that there weren't any obstacles or anything. Yeah. And, like, so I'd walk the property. Yeah. So that's what I'd do. I'd have three hours of driving in the morning. Yeah. I'd spend two hours taking a nice walk in the woods. Yeah, so you And then I'd drive for three more hours. Yeah. But the whole time I was listening to, like, podcasts of yeah. uh, Greg Cassell and Doug Farrar. Yeah, yeah. Getting myself back up to speed on the NFL because I was getting some feelers from John Granado and other people. Yes. Um. So I just that's what I did and it was awesome. Wow. It was like it was a perfect and it was a, there it was a little bittersweet when I walked away from that job cuz I there was a I had a friend that was in the business that was going to maybe bring me in as a partner, you know, and and to where we'd be hiring other people and everything. Um but I actually just enjoyed I enjoyed the actual entry level part of the job. That sounds peaceful as hell. It was uh it was a landman uh curative. Okay. There's there's different types of landmen in that's, like, that's the actual name of the yeah. job, the profession. It's a landman. Um, I was in the curative division, yeah. which is uh, more populated by ladies than me. But I got into it, and I loved it. Like, I wouldn't want to do any of the other stuff. That sounds awesome. I was, I was in old courthouses just digging up old information and everything. Oh, that sounds really cool. It was really cool. What's, what's the best, like, I don't want to call that a mindless job, but, like, what was your favorite What was your favorite non-vertically ascending job? Like, where you had no, no future in it or no dream of us uh, of going past what you enjoy oh, doing Oh god it. i've had so many jobs in my day my favorite my honestly okay this is going to sound very immature my favorite one uh in high school my senior year this girl who i was friends with her mom ran this big indoor tennis facility in our town oh yeah this is the most connecticut story ever yeah. so there's this big indoor tennis facility and so they just they needed somebody like from the time school was over until like 10 o'clock at night just to sit there and like sit at the desk, talk to members, take right. their money, hang out. And the best part. And so it was mindless. I got my homework done or whatever. And I just sit there. And, and this is back before the Internet. So I couldn't stream YouTube or anything like that. So I would just I, I'd. I'd uh, I'd watch TV. I'd you know I'd bullshit on the phone with my friends or whatever. But the best part was that's where we stored all of our beer. Oh, I had the best job. <laughs> did you have a key to the place? I too? did. Oh, I did. so you could go. Like, and they pick totally it up later. trusted me because I was yeah. like one of those kids. Like, oh, he's a good kid. And in reality, I was a good kid, but I was kind of mischievous. So we would not only store our beer there, but if we couldn't find a place to go, we would hang out at the Simsbury Tennis House. Like it closed at ten o'clock at night. We'd go there at like ten thirty. And we would like we had some like legit like I say legit parties. I mean it wasn't like sixteen candles, but right. it was like we would have like fifteen or twenty people, underage people in there, just pff, playing you tennis. Could, yeah, you could easily have lost your job in a, in a tennis. hard way. I probably could have gotten arrested. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Definitely could have gotten arrested for drinking. We would be playing drunk tennis in there. So that was that was my best job. Not only because it was a very mindless job, uh -huh. but because it had fringe benefits that the owner didn't realize were fringe benefits. I, I feel like that would be a good job too. Any college kid that you're taking a non-internship, but where you actually might get more valuable experience in just hanging around successful people, interacting, like yeah. interacting Networking. with a lot of because totally. that's and some dude's gonna like like the cut of your jib and the way you work and everything, and be like, hey, little Sean, let me tell you something. Come work for my dealership next summer. A yeah. hundred, a hundred percent, absolutely. Is that those are the two lessons that I wish I'd learned younger in life? It's that. All right, look. If if you want to have an honorable life, then yeah, go be a teacher, or a fireman, or whatever it is. Like I'm not. I'm saying like if you if that's what you're more about, yeah, it's yeah, like the actual sure. job. If you want to make money, 
the first step is choosing a profession where it's easier to make money. Yeah. Like put yourself where the money is. And it, sometimes it changes from time to time. You know, in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was mortgage brokers. Yep. Because, well, I guess in the early 2000s um, or, or what have you. Yeah. Like put yourself in the path of the money. Yeah. And the other thing would just be simply that is also put yourself around really successful people That's, that that will they will mentor you even if only by osmosis. That was the biggest thing <laughs> when I was in my twenties and I was I I got out of college I was working for a big company, and then my boss at the big company who liked me took me with him to a much smaller company but with much bigger upside and stock options and things like that. And once I got out of that big company and he took me there and I started making more money at that smaller company, I'm thinking, okay, the key. One of the keys is to attach yourself to the right people. Like get to yeah. know, get to know. I was like 25 at the time, so get to know the guys who are like in their 40s who know what the hell they're doing. Because when they move on to their next project, then you might be able to go with them. And that's where I spent most of my professional career before I got into radio. 10 years was with a company that was exactly that. Like these guys who were total go-getters yeah. started up a company and I became their Houston sales guy and kind of worked my way and, up. And the key too is to make yourself valuable to them or entertaining. Uh, one or the yeah. other, just, uh, just don't be an annoying little that sap true. that's just trying to suck Dude, off of them. That, I, there were there were times when my sales were down where I truly felt like they were keeping me around just because they thought I was hilarious. Oh, they've done studies on that. I mean, that's an obvious one. But even um, there was one study that kind of followed emails uh, in this company and they attached certain words to certain employees and they found basically like the people that were described as friendly or sociable I can't remember what the buzzwords were they like stayed around regardless of actual job performance because <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they were like they were well liked yeah which is another study where you're kind of like well duh but even in a in a very corporate society where things are numbers driven and everything being well liked and not being a bastard goes a long way and a lot of it's subconscious too like when they're sitting down evaluating these things it's not yeah. like they go well here are his numbers and he's also we give him five points for being funny right it's one of those things where you just get you, you tend to I guess you tend to get a little more leeway. You know, you get you'll get an extra like, month oh, or two yeah, to fix things. But you remember things. there was that weather that, that kept him from being able to do his routes <laughs> right, or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right, man. Awesome. So uh, yeah, so this was the Hard Knocks podcast at one point, and we're gonna figure I think out. We did some good work here. Today, we did. Though. I think we accomplished something. Yeah. I think we did good for America. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's. We're thinking we might do uh, just hand pick some. 30 for 30s Let's do, or something. Yeah, maybe like each you and I each pick like our top three. Yeah. 30 for 30 series is amazing. So next week it'll be a surprise. One of our yeah. listeners suggested going outside the sports world, which might be a good idea too. We yeah. might have to do like a make, then making a murderer or something like that. I'm down. Awesome, buddy. Have a good show today. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us, and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 